Okay, I'm going to start strong tonight. Um, <clears throat> I think my voice is out of shape. I haven't preached very much in the last, uh, what, 12 weeks or so. So uh, I seem to have lost a little bit of my voice singing. But I'm going to start strong tonight. It's, it's a great text. I've only preached this text once before, and I've always wanted to preach it again. And the Lord laid it on my heart. Um, in fact, I was going to preach this text what, three weeks ago, and I, I became ill, and we had to cancel the service, but uh, I love this text. So, question for you at the outset, are, is anyone here consciously and willfully disobeying Jesus Christ in your life right now? Has He clearly told you what to do and you simply are not doing it? Are you disregarding what the living God has said? It could be a hundred and one things. It doesn't really matter how big it is or how small it is. If He's told you to do a thing and you're not doing it, what is it? Someone tell me. It's sin. You know, there's no pretty word to put on it. It's sin. I know you've heard the saying, what is the enemy of the best? Anyone? Maybe you haven't heard the saying. The good is the enemy, right, of the best. You may be doing a good thing, but if it's not the thing God's called you to do, it's a sin. I could be sinning right now, preaching the Gospel in Milan, if God had called me to Sudan, right? It doesn't matter how big or how small it is. It doesn't matter. You guys probably remember, some of you who are uh, knowledgeable about the Old Testament, you remember King Saul. The Lord told King Saul to wipe out a people. And Saul did about half what God told him to do. Saul engaged in fractional uh, obedience. We'll call it downsized obedience. What did it cost Saul to halfway obey the Lord? Does anyone remember? It cost him his kingdom, right? The Lord took him out. The Lord's not interested in fractional obedience, beloved. He's not interested in domesticated or downsized obedience. That's not what he's interested in. I had an old preacher, uh, preacher friend who said to me one time, he said, you know, the Lord is as interested in your, your uh, partial obedience as your wife would be in your partial faithfulness. Right? I mean, 99% faithful is 100% what? Unfaithful. Now, I'm not talking about sinlessness here. That's not what I'm talking about. We, none of us are sinless. We understand that. I am not talking about sinlessness. I'm talking about you knowing what God has called you to do and you willfully and consciously refuse to do it. That's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm talking about this morning. Pardon me. This evening. <laughs> this evening. One thing I know about you and one thing I know about me. I think it's true of every one of us in here. If it's not true of you, you come talk to me. I want to meet you. I want to talk to you. I want to get to know you more. 
we all know what it means to rationalize and we're not afraid to do it, right? None of us are afraid to rationalize. I looked up that word in the dictionary. It says this, to devise self-satisfying but incorrect reasons for one's behavior or simply to justify oneself. It's as old as sin. How did Adam justify himself? It was, it was Eve's fault. It was that woman you gave me. It's her fault. Now how did Eve justify her sin? It was that serpent you made. Both times, it's a, backhanded, it's a backhanded slap at God. It's not my fault. Somehow it's your fault, God. <laughs> Somehow it's your fault. So it's as, as old as sin. I've never met a human being yet who's not highly skilled at rationalization. I looked at some synonyms here for this word, and I saw it immediately. I mean, I saw John chapter 21. We'll get into the text in a minute. I saw these synonyms. Listen to, listen to some of these synonyms. You know, we hear God's Word. We clearly understand what it means, but in varying degrees, we reduce the implication of God's Word. We decrease it. We downsize it. We cut back on it. We lessen it. We diminish it. We slim it down. Isn't that what we're all so good at doing? Aren't we all good at this? Aren't we all experts at this? It kind of depends on how long you've been in the church. But we all become highly accomplished at this. We hear God's Word. We clearly understand it. But then we begin to rationalize. We begin to import all this man-made wisdom. We, we listen to the world. We read the world's magazines. We watch how the world lives. And we rationalize. Surely God doesn't mean for me to do that. Look how the world lives. Look how the world lives. And so we begin to downsize what we know God is saying. We begin to, to slim it down. To pare it back. I can't tell you how many times when Karen and I came to Italy, I can't tell you how many times I heard the words, you know, you don't have to be, you know, you can, you can serve God right here in Little Rock. You can serve God right here. I know I can serve God right here. But this is not where God has called me to serve Him. Right? It's so easy to rationalize. So easy to rationalize. John chapter 21. I think the disciples are rationalizing. If you go back to Matthew chapter 28, we learn in Matthew 28 that there was a designated mountain upon which Jesus had told the disciples to meet Him in Galilee, right? There's a particular place where the Lord had instructed His men to meet Him. And as we get to John chapter 21, are they on the mountain? No, they went fishing. <laughs> they, went, they went fishing. 
Look at verse 2. Chapter 21 of John. Verse 2. The disciples were all together. There were seven of them. Simon Peter, Thomas. Hey, hey Keith, can you turn this off? off? Yeah. I'm like getting a gale breeze up here. It would be helpful. Thanks. Thomas called Didymus and Nathaniel and, uh, of, of Cana and the sons of Zebedee, James and John and two other disciples, probably Andrew and Philip. Verse 3. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going to go fishing. They said to him, We will also come with you. They went out and got into the boat. And that night, they caught nothing. Just a minor point, grammatical point here. They went out and got into the boat, not a boat. I discern from this that this is Peter's old boat. I think Peter has become a disciple of Christ but that discipleship has so threatened everything he understands and knows that he's beginning to, to ease back into his old way of life. Beloved, here's something you can't not do. If you've become a real Christian, if you've been born again, you can't take Jesus and stuff Him into your old way of life. It will not work. I know that much of Christendom will tell you that, oh, yes, it can work. No, biblically it cannot work. It cannot work. You cannot stuff Christ into your old life. You can't do it. And I think Peter, who is the leader of these men, I think he's taking these men back to their old way of life. I'm not dogmatic about John 21. Some people don't agree with, with my take on John 21. They don't think this is about these men uh, downsizing their call. I think I can make a compelling case that it is about that, but I'm not dogmatic. I'm not going to be dogmatic about it. But I am going to share my views here on John 21. I think they're supposed to be on the mountain. That's what I think. I think they're supposed to be on the mountain. But they went fishing. Fishing's not a sin, is it? It's not a sin to go fishing. When is it a sin to go fishing? If God told you to meet Him on the mountain, then it's a sin. It's a sin to go fishing. It appears to me that these guys are taking the first steps to easing back in to their pre-Jesus lives. Their pre-Jesus lives. The whole disciple thing was a little more intense than they bargained for. Hey, you know what? Maybe I could just be a good Christian fisherman, right? Maybe, maybe that's what I need to do. I'll just be a good Christian fisherman. And I'll be a nice fisherman. I'll be a nicer fisherman than, than I was before I met Jesus. I'll be a nice Christian fisherman. Nothing wrong with that, right? Unless God said, you meet me on the mountain because I'm going to talk to you about being a catcher of men. That's what the call was. That they would be catchers of men. Not go back to their old life and catch fish. I've seen this many times in my 25 plus years of ministry. Men and women apparently come to Christ. They make some profession of faith in Christ. And they're jazzed. And they're pumped. And they're going to live for the Lord. And they're going to do the, the will of God in their life. You run into these people ten years later and they're nowhere with Jesus. They're nowhere. And their Christianity has devolved into little more than attending church. 
You ask them about, how's your walk with Jesus? All they, ha- all they can tell you is, I go to the early service. That's all they have to say. Beloved, this is not biblical Christianity. <laughs> this is not biblical Christianity. You don't have to even ask them what happened. You know what happened. Somewhere along the line, they begin to rationalize. They begin to downsize what it means to be called a Christian. They, they begin to, to slim down and reduce and decrease the, the clear words of Jesus. I've seen it so many times. So many times. Obedience was harder than they thought it would be. And it was really uncomfortable sometimes. <laughs> And they just wanted to get back to their comfort zone. John Eldridge, uh, an, uh, an author in the States, some of you may have read him. He says, you walk into your average church in the U.S., and I've shared this quote with you before, and you encounter a lot of bored Christians. And I've told you many times that the term bored Christian is in its truest sense an oxymoron. The only reason a Christian could be bored is that that Christian is no longer obeying Christ. Somewhere along the way, he sat down. He's in the spiritual recliner. He's not hot on the heels of the Lord Jesus anymore. That's why a Christian could be bored. You can't, beloved, you can't be bored if you're walking with the Lion of Judah. You cannot be bored if you're really in a relationship with I Am. You cannot be bored. If you're bored, you sit down somewhere. If you're bored with Jesus, you sat down somewhere. And He kept going. Right? He kept walking. You're no longer on His heels. You're no longer on His heels. We know that bored Christians for the most part are those who are really Christians culturally. Not in any spiritual sense. It's just a cultural thing for them. There's no real life there. There's no real born-again aspect to it. But we also know that sometimes genuine believers get lazy with God. They get sloppy with God. And they leave off their disciplines of being in the Word sitting under preaching and their prayer time. And they become dull spiritually. We understand that these things happen. Let me ask you, beloved, if you're bored, if you're a bored Christian, if you're a bored Christian tonight, what is it that God told you to do that you have refused to do? That's where it started. If you're a bored Christian tonight, that's where it started. God told you to do a thing and you didn't want to do it. It looked a little too risky, a little too uncomfortable, a little too costly. I think Peter and the boys are starting to downsize the call of God on their lives. They're starting to domesticate their Christianity. I like this word. I use it a lot, domesticate. You know what it means, right? What does it mean to domesticate? means to tame something. There's way too much tame Christianity in Christendom today. 
Way too much. Way too much lethargy. Way too much lukewarmness. I think the boys, Peter and the boys, are starting to downsize their call. So how did these nice guy fishermen, how did they do? How did it it go for them? How did that work for them? They're supposed to be on the mountain, but they went fishing. What happened there at the end of verse 3? Someone tell me. How much did they catch? They didn't catch anything. Why not? (laughs) I mean, every fish at the end of the sea was under sovereign decree not to get in the net. God is not going to prosper spiritually or temporally someone, a child of His who is in disobedience. And again, you know, I'm not a prosperity preacher. That's not what I'm talking about. They didn't catch anything. There's a not-so-subtle message for us here. There's a not-so-subtle message for us here. God will not bless us in disobedience. He will not bless you in disobedience. And what is the greatest blessing of God? Someone tell me. Oh, I hope you know it. If you know this, I'll buy you a pizza. What is the greatest blessing of God? Him! Oh, yeah, pizza, man. Him! It's not money and cars and portfolios and jobs and careers and kids and family. It's not that. Those are blessings, aren't they? He is the preeminent blessing. I am your reward, God said to Abraham. I am your reward. You're not going to be blessed with God's fellowship if you are in disobedience. I don't care how nice you are. I don't care how good the thing is that you're doing. If you're supposed to be doing something else and you're not doing it, it's a sin. And you are defying the Alpha and the Omega. You are defying your Creator. You are defying your Redeemer. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that God disciplines us. Aren't you thankful that God disciplines us? It doesn't say He discards us, does it? God doesn't discard His children. He disciplines His children. I'm going to read it to you from the message. Hebrews 12, 6-8. through It's the child He loves that He disciplines. The child He embraces, He also corrects. God is educating you. He is treating you as a dear child. This trouble you're in isn't punishment. It's training. The normal experience of children. Only irresponsible parents leave children to fend for themselves. Would you prefer an irresponsible God? Jesus is lovingly coming to His disciples and He's teaching them. There is no profit in disobedience. There is, uh, there is no profit in domesticated Christianity. He's teaching them, you can't, you can't have Me and just go back to your old way of life. Everything's changed. If it's real with Me, everything's changed. You can't just simply go back to your old way of life. He's teaching them when He tells them to go to the mountain, He means for them to go to the mountain. He doesn't mean for them to go fishing. Look at verses 4-6. through Verse 8 tells us that 
they're about a hundred yards offshore, okay? And so Jesus is standing on the beach, but they don't recognize him. Jesus says, Hey, no fish, huh? Why don't you cast on the right side of the boat? And it's a, a God thing. And every fish at that end of the sea, God says, You go and jump in the net. And they did. And it was such a large catch that they couldn't, they could barely bring it up. <laughs> and John goes, I've seen this before. You guys remember? John, John says, Peter, it's God. It's the Lord Jesus. I love this. I love this. Peter, it's the Lord. You guys remember Luke chapter 5. They'd fished all night and they'd caught nothing. And Jesus said, hey, go on out again and, and cast your nets again. And they, they, they caught this, this catch that was phenomenal. It was phenomenal. It was breaking the nets and sinking the boats. And Jesus used that as a teaching point. This miracle of Jesus giving this, this miraculous catch. Jesus said, from now on you will be catchers of men. He's using the same kind of miracle to remind them of their original call. They are to be catchers of men. I'm sure a couple of them are going, man, I knew that. I knew that! But they were easing back into their old life. They were easing back into their pre-Jesus life. They're supposed to be on the mountain waiting for God, but they went back to their old ways. Verse 7, <laughs> John says, it's the Lord. It's the Lord. And, and of course, you've got to love Peter here. Peter throws himself into the sea. He throws himself into the sea and he, sw he, he swims to, to meet Jesus Christ. And you have to love Peter here. Yes, he's, in, he's, in, uh, he's supposed to be on the mountain and he's not. Yes, he's in disobedience. But this is the hallmark of a true Christian. It's wrong with Jesus right now. Hey, I'm in disobedience. I know I was supposed to be on the mountain, but I'm not on the mountain. And he jumps in the sea and he swims to Jesus. He can't wait to make it right. Beloved, here's the point. He can't wait to get it right with Jesus. And he flings himself into the sea and he, swim, he, he swims to where the Lord is standing. He can't wait to get it right. He can't wait to have that fellowship restored. God comes to discipline His men, but He doesn't come with a rod. He doesn't come with a rod. He comes in love and great gentleness and great kindness to reclaim His men from disobedience. Did you notice there in verses 12 and 13, God not only has come to them, what else? He's made breakfast. You know, anytime I see stuff like this, I just, I'm in awe. I mean, you got to remember who this is. Who is this? This is a carpenter from Nazareth, right? Who happens to be God. And God prepares, I am, prepares breakfast for His men. Not only that, He serves them. 
I'm always in awe of the infinite condescension of Christ. If you're not in awe of the infinite condescension of Christ, you've not understood who He is. You've not understood that He's the, the awesome, fearsome, consuming fire God of Mount Sinai. When He came down, the, the, the mountain shook and the people trembled. If you're not in awe, you've forgotten that He's the Creator God. Beloved, who is a God like ours that takes on flesh? Who is a God like ours that's born in a stable? Who is a God like ours that humbles Himself to be a carpenter? Who is a God like ours who has no place to lay His head? Who is a God like ours who washes the dirty feet of His men? Who is a God like ours who is scourged and crucified for His people? I worship at the infinite condescension of Jesus Christ. He makes them breakfast. <laughs> and He serves them. He makes them breakfast and He serves them. We see the loving kindness of Jesus here. He loves them. And He loves Peter. And Jesus is going to, to remind Peter why He's even walking the planet. Why He was redeemed. Peter says, Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? And beloved, that's the question for you tonight. That's the question for me. Do you love him? Well, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? Jesus says, if you love me, what? You'll just do whatever seems right to yourself. You'll just go with the flow. You'll just do what the world does. You'll just fit in with everybody. What does Jesus say? If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. That's what Jesus says. Again, I'm not talking about sinlessness. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about you and your life and what's going on in your life and what God is talking to you about. My challenge to you is to obey your God. Obey your Savior. Parenthetically, I just want to say, verse 14, this is the third time Jesus has shown Himself to them. That means, and I think this gives weight to my view, that means they've not yet met on the mountain. They've not yet met on the mountain. Jesus has come to remind His men it's not about catching fish anymore, it's about catching My people. Verses 15 to 17, Jesus turns to Peter and he says, Do you love me more than these? And there's legitimate debate here about what Jesus is asking Peter. You may remember that Peter had told the Lord, and he said it in front of all the other guys, I love you more. In essence, he said, I'll go to the death for you, I'll never deny you. What happened? Peter did deny the Lord three times. And many people will say, well, this is a, one reason that Jesus asks him three times if he loves him to negate the denial. I don't think this is about Peter saying, or Jesus saying, do you love me more than these other disciples? I think Jesus is saying clearly in my mind, he's saying, do you love me more than your boats? Do you love me more than your nets? Do you love me more than your career? Do you love me more than that steady stream of income? Do you love me more than your family? Do you love me more than your security? I think this is what Jesus is clearly saying. Do you love me more than this stuff, Peter? Do you? 
Peter says, Lord, you know. You know I love you. Don't you love the fact that our God is omniscient? You know what that word means, right? It just means He knows everything. He knows what's percolating in your mind right now, what's percolating in your heart right now. Don't you love this? I love this. Why would I love this? Because on the day that no one else can tell I'm a Christian, and no one can tell I love Jesus, Jesus knows I love Jesus. Amen? Jesus knows I love Jesus. Peter says, Lord, You know I love You. You know it. What did Jesus say to him three times? Then do what I said. Right? Feed my sheep. Tend my sheep. Feed my lambs. Jesus said, do what I said. Peter, you can't take me and stuff me into your old life. It doesn't work like that. I know there are millions of people who call themselves Christians around the world and that's what they do. They take Jesus and they try to stuff Him into their life and stuff Him into what they want to do with their life. That's not how biblical Christianity works. You just got to read your Bible. <laughs> you, know? you just got to open it up and read it. That's not what we see on the pages of Scripture. That's not what we see. Peter, do you love me more than everything else? And that's always beloved. That's always the question, right? For the, for the Bible-believing Christian, the born-again Christian, that's always the question. Do you love me more than everything else? John 10, 27. I, people ask me a lot, you know, as a pastor, I get this question a lot. Well, how, how can you know you're a Christian? I love what Jesus says in John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice and they scatter to the four ends of the earth. Is that what Peter, is that what Jesus says? What does he say? My sheep, they hear my voice. I know them, they know me. What else? And they follow me. I'm not talking about perfection. Uh, I'm not talking about perfection. But I am talking about knowing what He's clearly told you to do and you ignoring it. That's what I'm talking about tonight. Jesus asked Him three times and Jesus is restoring Peter to his place of leadership in front of the, in front of the other men. And uh, this is a gracious thing. A gracious thing that Peter receives from the Lord. Look at verse 18 and 19. Jesus basically tells Peter how he will die. How he will die. They will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you to the place where you do not wish to go. Effectively, Jesus is telling Peter he will also be crucified. Do you still love me, Peter? Part of me thinks this is a great encouragement to Peter. Because Peter knows if he's going to be crucified for Christ, <laughs> he's not going to fail anymore. 
He may fall some, but he ain't going to fail like he did before. He's going to die proclaiming the Gospel. He's going to die proclaiming the glory of Jesus. On the one hand, I think this is a great encouragement to him. Peter, someone is going to take you where you don't want to go. They're going to stretch out your hands. Will you still follow me, Peter? Look at, look at verse 19. I, I have the NAS, the New American Standard, which is the most literal English translation from the Greek. And there's an exclamation point here. Follow me! There's urgency here. There's importance here. This is not follow me when you can or when it's convenient or when you get around to it. Peter, follow me! This is the Lord's command to each one of us. This is the Lord's command to each one. One of us, church tradition tells us that Peter was crucified upside down after three decades of, of ministry. Look at verses 20 and 21. Peter turned and he looked at John. And he asked Jesus about, about John. He said, well, what about this guy? <laughs> and there's a great lesson here for you and I, right? He says, what about this guy? And Jesus says, what is that to you? <laughs> what is that to you? What difference does it make what I do in John's life? You follow me. You know, there's this habit that I've seen Christians get into. You know, they like to size up what God's doing in their brother's life or their sister's life, right? And they're comparing it to what God's doing in, in, in their life. Well, you know, we know there's great divergence and disparity in the Christian uh, Christian church. Some, some Christians are rich. Some are poor. Some are healthy. Some are sick. Some have tremendous ministries with great impact. Some have anonymous ministries with little visible fruit. There's great, there's great disparity. But that's God's business, right? God says, what I do with John doesn't have anything to do with you, Peter. So what I want to say to you, there's a great lesson here for us. You're not to, you know, I'm not supposed to look at John MacArthur or John Piper or anyone else. And you're not supposed to be watching some other Christian and analyzing and, and trying to, to calculate all that God's doing in their life. You just follow Jesus. You just do what's in front of you. You just do what God says. Just do it. I say it to you all the time, Christianity is incredibly simple. It's incredibly simple. Do what God says. Just do what God says. Jesus says tonight to His men who had begun to downsize what it meant to be a Christian. They had begun to dumb it down what it meant to be His disciple. They had begun to, to try to stuff Jesus into their old way of life. Jesus says, you can't do that. You either go with me or you stay here. You either do what I say or stay here. Beloved, this is not negotiable. I talk to Christians sometimes and they th it sounds like they think this is negotiable. It is never negotiable. Again, I'm not talking about sinlessness. I'm talking about obedience. When you know, when you know what God has called you to do and 
to be. So, are you, friend, are you following? Are you doing the thing that God has called you to? All right, did you settle for some lesser good thing? Well, tonight I challenge you to repent. If you settled for some lesser good thing, I challenge you to dispense with that, to get rid of that, and go with Jesus. Go with your Creator. Go with your Redeemer. Go with Him. Do what He tells you. Jesus is asking every one of us here tonight one simple question. Do you love me? That's really it. It's not anything less than that. That's it. It always comes down to that. Jesus is saying, do you love me? If the answer is yes, then stop rationalizing about the sin in your life and about the disobedience in your life. If the answer is yes, stop downsizing the call that God has given you in your life. Jesus asks, do you love me? He says, if you do, do what I say. Do what I say. Do what I say. Let's pray together. I give you the body. If anyone wants to pray, let's take a minute. If anyone wants to, to give praise or, or, or pray or Give thanks. or If anybody has anything they want to say to the Lord, say it. And then I'll close. Lord, I thank You that You have a...